You know, uh, it's amazing to know that no matter what we face in life, isn't it comforting to know that our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, He's omniscient, omnipresent, and He's omnipotent, which means that, that He is all-knowing. He's everywhere, and He knows all things. We love and serve a God that knows the end from the beginning, and He's been tempted and always as we have been tempted, yet he's without sin. You see, Jesus Christ, he has the power over death and over hell and over the demons and over Satan. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. We have the word left behind for us to study and meditate upon so that as we obediently follow his word, we become more like Christ. But you know, when you take a step back and think about it, how often do we find ourselves lacking in spiritual power and having a skewed view of servanthood? And even at times, we kind of, we don't realize the, the actual tremendous cost of following Christ in discipleship. You know, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and yet more times than we like to admit we can identify with the apostles when Christ on many occasions said, oh, ye of little faith. Being a slave of Christ takes an all-out commitment and it requires spiritual discipline in order for us to live a life that truly does bring glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. You know, Jesus, he, he had to slowly walk the apostles through who he was, why he came to earth, why he must die, and what they were required of him to carry on that ministry when he returned to heaven. But many times in his teaching process, the apostles, they got sidetracked. And instead of just focusing on the words of Jesus Christ, they started turning their, their focus inward and looked at themselves. And you know what? That sure is the case in our passage this morning, which is in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 50. And I, and I will say, as we always say, this is a lot of verses to cover, so I can't go deep on all of it, but it gives you enough to know what this passage means so that you can study it further on your own. And I've titled today's lesson, Faith, Humility, and Discipleship. And I, I left them on the table there. You can see it's a very simple outline. There's three sections in this passage. And I've titled this in these three areas. Number one, Jesus proclaims the necessity of faith, which is in verses 14 through 29. Number two, Jesus prioritizes humility, which is found in verses 30 through 41. And number three, Jesus presents the high cost of discipleship which is in verses 42 through 50. So let's dive in and let's look at our first section. Jesus proclaims the necessity of faith. And we begin in verse 14, where it says, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some, and some scribes arguing with them. Well, so stop right there. What event had just taken place prior to this? If you remember from last week, Vikram taught us, it was the transfiguration. It had just taken place, and so 
Now, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They come back to the nine disciples that were left behind, and they find themselves in the midst of an argument. So scribes, as you'll know, they were always, always trying to discredit Jesus and his disciples. They were always trying to get the people to not listen to his message and listen to what they had to say. So after just communing with his heavenly father and and also communing with Moses and Elijah, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come down from the mountain and here they are seeing that the other disciples are in the midst of this dispute. And then this argument, it's interrupted in verse 15 which states, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. You know, some commentators, they think that the reason that the crowd was amazed because there was still this kind of Shekinah glory afterglow from Jesus being on, uh, just being transfigured. But we know that's not the case because he told Peter, James, and John, he said, don't tell anybody about this until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So Jesus is not gonna go against his own prohibition. So it's, it's not that he had this afterglow. And I like what one commentator states. He says, the crowd was awestruck as they always were in his presence because Jesus was the miracle worker, the one who performed signs, wonders, and healings. So as usual, the crowds, they were were just amazed. They see Christ and and so they run to him. Moving forward in verses 16 through 19, it says, and he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. So Jesus, he comes down with all his glory, comes down from the mountain and he comes to the the disciples' aid. So he's kind of their protector, and so he's looking around, and he says, he asks them, what are you arguing about? But you notice the scribes remain silent, as well as the disciples. They don't say a word. See, the scribes, they had not been successful at debating with Jesus at all. So there's no way they were going to open their mouth now. They realized that they failed miserably with him. And then the disciples, they were... Quiet, probably because they they hadn't been doing such a great job in this debate with the scribes. But on top of that, they're highly embarrassed because here they are, they had the power given to them by Jesus Christ to cast out demons, and yet in Christ's absence, they failed miserably. The demon remained in this boy. So they just remained silent. And as a side note, the scribes are not mentioned anywhere in this passage again. Jesus comes down from the mountain. The scribes are arguing with his disciples. He asks them, what are you guys arguing about? They keep their mouth shut. We don't hear about them again. It's just like a side note. They're gone. So instead of these people, his disciples or the scribes answering, a man in the crowd, he answers and what he says, he, he lets them know the, this dire condition that his son's in. His son is possessed by a demon. And he, he's just overwrought with, with just pain and suffering because he's seen his little boy just demon-possessed. And, and, and 
when you hear about the healer, this man Jesus, that can do all these glorious things, no doubt it has spread so far by now that this man heard that Jesus is the man that can take that demon out of his son. So he brought his son to Jesus, but when he arrived on the scene, he realized Jesus wasn't there. So his disciples are there. So he thought, well, I guess the next best thing is his disciples. Let me talk with them. So he goes to the disciples, and, and he asks them to, to cast out the demon. And in Luke's account of this event, we learn that this man not only asked, he begged them. He begged them, cast this demon out from my son. And they could not. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, naturally he's going from, okay, here's plan B, here's plan A, let's go to Jesus. And this, this man, he addressed Jesus as teacher. And in Matthew's account, he addresses Jesus as Lord. And he falls at Jesus' feet. And in Luke's account, this man shouts out to Jesus because the crowd, it's, it's large and there's lots of noise. So he, he shouts out. And he begs him to take a look at his son. And in Luke's account, we find that it was his one and only son. So this man, he was expressing weak faith. But it was some faith in Jesus. And, and he humbly comes before Jesus is just expressing his distraught over the condition of his son. I mean, just for a moment, imagine, put, your, put yourself in the shoes of that man. We're talking about your child. He was your one and only son. And he's possessed by a demon. I mean, obviously, you would want that demon to be out of him. Of course you would. So this man, he brings his son to Jesus' disciples, and they are unable to do exactly what Jesus gave them the power to do. They could not cast this demon out. Guess what? Jesus is not pleased. When we, we, he doesn't like that response. When he comes back and hears that, and we can see that by verse 19, where he says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Who, who's Jesus talking here? Who do you think he's talking about? Well, it surely could refer to the scribes and to the crowd and as well as to this, this father but in the immediate context, it seems best to see that Jesus is being exasperated with his disciples. One commentator states, the interjection O expresses emotion on Jesus' part, revealing that the disciples' weak faith was painful to him. I mean, think about it. The disciples had been with Jesus for some two and a half years. He's pouring his life into them. He's teaching these valuable lessons. They see him day in and day out, presenting the gospel, healing people, compassion for all of these people. And here, the, the power that they gave, that they were given by him, they don't exercise that power, and it makes him sad. You see, Jesus, he's not going to be with the disciples for that much longer. And they all needed to learn the valuable lesson of putting their complete faith in Jesus in order to unlock his divine power in their lives and in the ministries that he is 
pushing them out to be the first century gospel preachers. And MacArthur states, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Was an expression of holy exasperation. Like his rebukes, you of little faith and you men of little faith. But you know what's so amazing about our great God? Is it didn't matter the fact at that moment that his disciples had weak faith and they weren't able to do what he had already given the power to do. And so because of that, he doesn't just stay in frustration and say, well, I'm out of here. If you guys aren't getting this, I'm gone. He doesn't do that. In the end, Jesus, what he does, instead of refusing to take action, he takes action. So what does he say? He says, bring the boy to me. Bring him here. And verse 20 says, that they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. So as Jesus calls the boy, the boy, they bring the boy to him, and the demon inside the boy sees Jesus, knows exactly who he is. Because remember, demons have correct theology. They know who Jesus Christ is because they used to be in heaven before they sinned and were cast out. So in this one last violent action, he causes this boy to just have this crazy convulsion, throws him to the ground, he's foaming at the mouth, and he's rolling around. And, and, and if, you, if you read it quick, you don't catch this. This is so cool. All of this is taking place, and it doesn't phase Jesus. He's unfazed. And just calmly in verse 21, he asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening? So why, why did he ask the father, how long has this been happening? Did, did he not know? Of course he did. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. He asked the question so that the father could comprehend that he was coming to a person and not an impersonal power source. He, he was allowing this man because, because Christ is full of compassion and mercy, he's allowing this man to bear his soul, to come to him and say, Jesus, this is what's taking place. This is my one and only son. He's possessed by a demon. And he wants that demon to be removed. So Jesus, in his compassion, lets the man speak and let him know what's going on. And he sympathetically listens. So the father tells Jesus, that the demon has been doing this since he was a child. And in verse 22, it says, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. You see, there were fires all over Israel. That's how you had to cook. That's how you had to burn your garbage and water. I mean, there's pools all over the place, everywhere. So this demon, since this boy had been a child, had been trying to kill him. But God did not allow this to happen so that Christ could receive the glory here. Now the moment of truth arrives. The disciples could not cast out this demon. So the father brings the boy to Jesus and continuing on in verse 22, the father proclaims, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And you have to realize that it's not just saying, if you can do anything, help us. That Greek word help 
here, it means to run to the aid of one crying for help. So he's crying for help. He's like, come, come to my aid if there's anything you can do. See, this man, he had weak faith. I mean, he could sense that Jesus was compassionate and, and was willing to help him with his plea, but he just wasn't certain if Jesus could actually do what his disciples could not do. I'm sure he was full of faith when he heard about Jesus, so he brings the child there, and then the disciples couldn't do it. Then he's like, hmm. So he knows he's willing, but can you do it? Isn't that just like you and me? I mean, how often in our lives, we know in our hearts, we know that Jesus can do all things. Yet sometimes our heads gets in the way and we doubt his power. Commentator James Edwards says, the problem's not divine unwillingness or divine inability, but human unbelief. What is impossible to humans is possible to God. So this father, he's showing this small amount of faith, but it's mixed in with doubt, and Jesus responds in verse 23 with, if you can? I mean, think about it. In, in other words, Jesus was basically saying, seriously? I mean, how can you doubt me being able to cast out a demon? Haven't you heard about all the miracles that I've been doing? I've been casting out and healing people and casting out demons. So Jesus continues by stating this, and this is the point of this section. All things are possible to him who believes. That's it right there. That's the heart of this section. All things are possible to him who believes. It's not about casting out a demon. Yes, that's what happens here, but that's not what it's about. It's about faith. It's about exercising our faith in the Messiah. And yes, Jesus was teaching this particular man a lesson about faith in him, but ultimately, what Jesus was doing is, it's this lesson for his disciples to believe in him in order to carry out his ministry when he returns to his heavenly abode. So in order for the disciples to unleash Christ's power in their lives, they had to fully trust in him. One commentator says, the lesson that faith is essential to access the power of God applied to all the unbelieving crowd, the father who was struggling to believe, as well as to the disciples whose faith was weak and wavering. The disciples especially needed to learn this lesson since after Christ's death, they would need to access divine power through believing prayer. Continuing on in verse 24, we read, Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. That's huge. See, this man, he did have a small amount of faith, but at the same time he realized that he had uh, this mixture of unbelief in there as well. I mean, this man was honest. He, he knew that Jesus had the power to cast out the demon, from his son, but he still doubted. And so he begged Jesus, help my unbelief. I believe, but I'm still doubting. I want the doubt to go away. Please help me. 
when you think about it. True faith always has a measure of awareness as to how small and inadequate it is. And this man realized how, how small his faith was. So he cries out to Jesus to increase his faith. He comprehended the fact that while he in himself was inadequate, Jesus was sufficient. Do you know that as well? Jesus is sufficient to meet every one of our needs. We need to, to trust wholeheartedly in Christ and in the promises of his word. No matter what we're going through, Christ is faithful. And the point is not that, that you know, enough faith, if we just have enough faith, then, then we can do anything. That's not the point. Rather, the point is that the object of your faith, which is God, he is the one that can do anything. Not us. It's God. Back in our passage in verses 25 through 27. It says, When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. You see, Jesus' public ministry in Galilee was all but over, and it was now time for him to focus on private instruction of his disciples. So as the crowd was getting larger and larger, Jesus acts, and he casts out the demon. You see, many of Jesus' miracles did not rely on the faith of the person involved in that miracle. But in this one right here, it did require the faith on this father. And it was, that's why when he responded in faith, he says, yes, help my unbelief. Jesus responded. And he graciously cast the demon out of this child. And in Luke's account, we learned that after Jesus raised the boy to his feet, he gave the boy back to his father. So he didn't just cast the demon out and just leave this child in like a dead, death-like situation. He raised him up to his feet and then graciously went, gave the son back to the father. What the father came to do was have this boy released from the demon. But in that process, his faith was increased in Christ. He saw the power on display of the Messiah. I mean, what a kind and compassionate and loving Savior we serve. Whatever we're going through today, whatever it is, physical, spiritual, emotional, financial, God has our back. We trust and rely on Him. He will meet every one of our needs. And wrapping up this section in verses 28 to 29, says, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So Jesus, obviously, he knows their thoughts. He knows his disciples. He's been with them. He knows that their faith is still very weak. And that needed to change 
prior to him being ascended back into heaven. He needed to teach these guys lessons. So this private lesson, it teaches the disciples in a very clear way that they will never be able to rely, rely on themselves, but rather they needed to rely on the power of God. The issue of faith has, has been driving force in this section. And one commentator says, I, I love this, I love this. Prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. Prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. You see, prayer is more than just communicating with God. Prayer it also it acknowledges our complete reliance on Him to meet our each and every need. You know, the disciples here, they, they may have been a little puffed up, thinking that, you know, the power to cast out demons came from themselves. But in his wonderful teaching style, Jesus lets his disciples know that they have no power of their own, none whatsoever. Rather, it is only by faith through prayer that can allow them to unleash the infinite power of God in their lives and in their ministries that they're embarking upon. You know, the same is true for us today. Our faith needs to be bathed in prayer so that we can completely rely on a sovereign God to infuse us with his power in order for us to do things that we could never do. That it's just moving his kingdom along for his purposes. And we all know this. If you don't, you should know this. We are in a spiritual battle. But praise God. The battle belongs to the Lord. And he uses people like you and like me. Even when our faith is mustard seed-like, he still uses us. But it's through prayer that we unlock the power of God and we trust in him to accomplish his providential plans. Our second section is Jesus prioritizes humility found in verses 30 through 41. See, humility was not valued in Jesus' day, and it still is not valued in our day today. I mean, pride, it dominates our culture today, just like it dominated Christ's culture in the first century. So Jesus, his public ministry, it's, it's all but virtually over in Galilee. So in Mark chapters 9 and 10, he has this time with his disciples privately to dispense on them these much-needed lessons that they needed to learn before his ascension. I mean, he had just taught them a lesson on faith in verses 14 through 29. And now in verses 30 through 41, he'll teach them a valuable lesson about being humble. Look at verses 30 through 32. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So with no crowds around, Jesus now, he has this uninterrupted teaching time with his disciples. 
because they still had so, so much to learn in order to take the gospel message to the, to the world. And what better place to start on humility than Christ himself expressing how he will humble himself to death and then three days later, he'll rise again. So what Christ is doing, this is the second time and he'll do it one more time as well, he's preparing his disciples to know that, hey, I'm gonna die and then I am going to rise again. And this would not take place in the too far distant future from this state, statement right here. But yet, the disciples couldn't comprehend what he was saying. And they desperately needed, desperately needed to know how to be humble. Because they, just like you and me, are filled at times with pride. I mean, think about it. No doubt these men were probably a, a little conceited and had some pride due to the fact that they were the closest followers of Jesus Christ. Christ himself selected them to be his disciples. I'm sure their ego was a little puffed up. And coupled with the fact that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were notoriously prideful. I mean, they were a horrible, horrible example for the Jewish people to follow. But pride was a good characteristic to pursue in this time. As a matter of fact, in today's society, pride is looked at as okay. Humility is not. It's shunned. So Jesus tells his disciples that he'll be killed, and then three days later he's going to rise again. But the disciples could not grasp the concept of a dying Messiah. One commentator puts it, that was the primary truth that they needed to understand and that they were unable to comprehend or accept. As it was for their fellow Jews, a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block for the disciples. A, di a dying Messiah was utterly incomprehensible and unacceptable to them. They, they just couldn't grasp it. How in the world, the Messiah, gonna die and suffer? No, that does not make sense. They couldn't believe that he would be delivered over to death. And, and that word, delivered, comes from a form of the Greek word paradidomai, which literally means to hand over. You know, multiple times in the Gospels, this verb, it's used in a legal sense to describe Jesus being handed over for judgment and for punishment. Well, then we step back and think, who exactly handed Jesus over to die? Humanly speaking, Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas handed Jesus over to the Jewish leaders. Then the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate. And then Pilate, at the urging of the Jewish people, handed Jesus over to the Roman executioners, and the Roman executioners crucified him. However, it's not until we read in Acts 2.23 that we discover ultimately it was God who delivered Jesus over to die at the hands of men. Verse 23 states, This man, referring to Jesus, 
delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So ultimately it was God that handed his son over for our benefit so that Christ would be the propitiation of our sins. That all who would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that his death and his death alone on the cross could pay our sin debt. That is why. That's the plan of redemption from the beginning of time. So God is moving it forward and Christ is fulfilling it. And Robert Stein says, the content and meaning of the words Jesus spoke were understood by the disciples, but the truth and divine necessity of what he said were not. It just didn't make sense. At this point in the disciples' journey of faith, they, they couldn't understand this eternal plan that God had for Jesus to be delivered over to men to die and to rise again. And they were afraid to ask him. And you, you gotta catch this. This is very cool. In their, in their fear, at this time, he, Jesus knew that the disciples couldn't bear this. They couldn't understand and comprehend all of it. So in his mercy, in his grace, he does not go any further explaining the death and resurrection. It was just, again, Christ being gracious and humble to them, and yet he's gonna continue to slowly and slowly teach them all of the truths that they need to know so that they will comprehend it one day when the Spirit makes all things known to them. And you know, in, in Jesus' day, I mean, uh, this, this blows me away. People in, in Jesus' day just had to be in phenomenal shape because they didn't have cars. There was no public transportation. You wanted to get from point A to point B, what did you use? For the most part, you used your own two feet. You had to walk. So Jesus and his disciples they had started this journey from Caesarea Philippi and now they are in Capernaum. So look at verses 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum and, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So on this very lengthy walk, it, it was about a, a 60-plus mile walk from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, again, walking. That's what they're doing. So they're having this, this very lengthy discussion and when they entered a house in Capernaum, we don't know whose house it is. Maybe it was Peter's, but we don't know. But Jesus, he gets them and he says, hey, what are you guys discussing? But the disciples remained silent. Again, here's the second time. Now they remained silent earlier, now they remain silent here. Because they know, they know that what they're debating I'm number one. No, I'm number one. No, you're two. No, you, you, you're, you're down on the list. They know that Jesus would not be enthusiastically uh, wanting to be a part of that conversation. 
and lift them up and say, number one, number two, three, tied for fourth, uh, and on and on. They knew that. So they just remain silent. And, and we don't know who started the debate or what started the debate, but perhaps it, it could have been Peter, James, and John for their privileged position as the inner circle of Christ. We don't know. Whatever the case, they had this long discussion about the issue of, of who's the best. But they just, they're silent. No one speaks up. I mean, earlier on on this trip to Capernaum, Jesus had spoken to the disciples about his humiliation, that he was going to die, then he's going to rise again. And now all they could do, he's talking about humiliation, they're talking about their own exaltation. They just keep their mouth shut. So instead, Jesus, what he does, this is wonderful. Even though they don't say a word, he knows exactly what they're discussing. He's omniscient. So he takes a seated position. And that seated position, it's a very common position that Jewish rabbis would take when they're getting ready to, to have people come to class. So he's basically saying, okay, let's go to school, guys. You're not getting this. So these men, they were going to take the gospel message to the nations. And here they are. They're going to be the leaders of the church. So Jesus needed to teach them that, that pride is ugly and that it brings division among people. And it was absolutely essential that these disciples were a unified group of men as they were about to embark on their God-given ministry endeavor. Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone wants to be first, he, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That had to have rocked the disciples to their core because pride was acceptable in their culture. It, it, was, it was actually a virtue in their culture, especially since the Jewish religious leaders were incredibly prideful. I mean, that's the Jewish people's examples, was the Jewish leaders. I mean, they, they wanted people to praise them. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues, the best seats when they're going to eat. They, when they prayed, they wanted people to hear it and, and, and exclaim, oh, how holy and righteous you guys are. It was all about self-exaltation. And Jesus sits them down, and he's debunking the idea that pride is a desirable virtue. By claiming to be first, you must be last and servant of all. And that term servant commonly referred to a, a table waiter or a domestic servant, someone whose sole purpose was to meet someone else's needs. One commentator writes, the spirit of surface, service is the passport of eminence in the kingdom of God. For it is the spirit of the master who himself becomes diakonos panton, servant of all. What an amazing, amazing lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. You want to be first? You got to humble yourself and you need to be last. And you need to serve everybody. I mean, that message is timeless. And just like it was countercultural in Jesus' day, 
It's countercultural in our day as well. I mean, to be humble, to serve others, to meet other people's needs before you meet your own, that doesn't make sense. But that's exactly what Jesus calls for all believers to do. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then you need to be last, and you need to be servant of all. I mean, we live in a dog-eat-dog world where everybody's looking out for number one. You're looking out for yourself. And pride, it rears its ugly head in so many different ways. I taught about that a couple months ago when we went through the book of Proverbs. I talked about pride and humility. It rears, pride is just so ugly. But again, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? You've got to lay aside your pride you need to be humble. You need to serve others out of, out of a heart of love and of compassion and mercy. James Edwards says, Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. So Jesus, he, he continues this marvelous teaching on humility by getting a child putting him in front of the disciples, and then taking him in his arms. And he says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. See, several times in the gospel, Jesus uses young children as illustrations of humility. You might think, well, why does he do that? Well, young children are weak and dependent upon others. They have no social status. They haven't achieved anything great or accomplished anything of great significance. And rabbis, they even thought that there was no point in teaching children under the age of 12. MacArthur states, little children are analogous to believers. So this right here, this means that how we as believers treat other believers is greatly important in the eyes of God because all believers, if you're a believer here, you have the triune God dwelling inside of you. So listen up, don't, don't miss this point. How you treat other believers is how you treat Christ and ultimately how you treat God. Christ died for the elect, and, and he doesn't love one believer more than another believer. Not at all. He loves the brethren equally, and that is a lesson that we need to learn as well. We are to love all the brethren. We are to serve the brethren. And I like what one commentator says. Jesus' point, therefore, is that true servant leadership means welcoming those of his his followers who are deemed irrelevant and unworthy of such recognition. True servant leadership flips social hierarchy on its head, lifting up and serving those of lower status in the eyes of the world. Jesus was conveying the utmost importance of self-sacrifice and willing service to other believers no matter what their status may be. So if the disciples, and in essence, if us as Christ's disciples want to be great in God's eyes, then they as well as us need to know how to be lowly. 
how to humble ourselves to other believers. That's what we need to do. That's what they needed to do. I mean, take a moment right now. Evaluate in your own heart if your service to other believers would be deemed great in the eyes of man or great in the eyes of God. And if you need to switch how and who you need to serve, you need to do it for the glory of God. You want to be great in God's kingdom? You need to be last. You need to be servant of all. Look back at our text, starting in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following up. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So there's a good chance right here that John's conscience has been pricked because of Jesus' teaching on humility, in which would be a rebuke of the disciples' pride. So John, he makes this statement about how the disciples tried to prevent another believer from casting out a demon in Jesus' name. And, And how do we know that this person was a believer? We know it because what Jesus said. He states, don't hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. So even though this man, since he was a true believer, what that means is he would be taking the message of Christ and be be proclaiming the truth of Jesus. So he was to be left alone. He wasn't to be hindered. God is saying, leave him alone. Let him do what he's doing. This man was for Christ and not against him. So a lesson we can learn from this point of scripture is that all believers are gifted by the Holy Spirit to edify the body of Christ and to proclaim the truth of God's word. And we are not to hinder another believer from participating in kingdom work just because they're not like us. They don't do ministry like us or they don't belong to our exclusive club because of our pride. You see, there is diversity in the body of Christ. And as long as a person is truly saved, he's truly a child of God, they shouldn't be hindered from ministry just because they don't do ministry the same way that you or I do ministry. The body of Christ is made up of redeemed people that Christ has purchased with his blood And we're on the same team using our spiritual gifts for the glory of God. So may we never let our pride get in the way and cause us to hinder someone from legitimately serving Christ in his name. Finally, in verse 41, Christ switches from the negative aspects of pride to the positive aspects of humility. In verse 41, Jesus is basically letting his disciples know that that even small acts of of kindness done to believers will be rewarded because they have done it unto the Lord. In essence, humility is kindness and self-sacrifice shown to other believers. You wanna be great in the kingdom of God? And like I said, we need to get rid of our pride and humbly serve other believers of all status 
with a heart of love, compassion, and we will be rewarded in heaven. We'll go through the final point rapidly. It's found in verses 42 through 50. It's Jesus presenting the high cost of discipleship. But right before I read this section, I, I want you to know that in the earliest manuscripts, in the Greek manuscripts, verses 44 and 46 are not included. You may have them in brackets. And probably what took place was over time a scribe or scribes felt the necessity to put added emphasis on this passage. So what is indeed included in the passage in verse 48, they thought that they would also include it in verses 44 and 46. So with that in mind, as I read right now, I will not be reading 44 and 46. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your hand, two hands, to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast in hell. 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, that's some pretty intense language right there from Christ. I mean, that, it, it's showing his extreme high cost of discipleship. And it's, it's an all-out effort. And in verse 42, when he says little ones, Jesus is referring, he's not referring to actual little children, but he's referring to believers. So Jesus makes it very, very clear that if you cause another believer to sin, then it would be better for you to have this massive, huge rock tied around your neck and then cast into the sea so that you would die. Man, and I mean, that's, that's intense. But Jesus hates sin. He hates it. He's making it crystal clear that believers are not to cause other believers to sin. As believers, we are to be known for our love for the brethren. And in Hebrews 10, 24, it says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Paul penned in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. I mean, the most unloving thing that a believer can do to another believer is to cause him to stumble. Moving on from causing another believer to sin is looking within, about causing our own selves to sin. That's in verses 43, 45, and 47. And they're graphic metaphors for a believer to drastically remove the sin that's in your life. And, and hear me out. Jesus is not stating that we should literally remove body parts if they cause us to stumble because Sin is a matter of what? The heart. It's a matter of the heart. I mean, you can have no eyes, no hands, and no feet. You're still going to sin. And remember the men of Sodom? They surrounded Lot's house because they wanted to have their way sexually with the angels. The angels caused them to be blind. And you would think that they would freak out and run away because they're blind. But what do they do? 
They're groping their way, trying to find the door because they want their lust to be fulfilled. It has nothing to do with our hands and our feet and our eyes. It's all about our heart. So Jesus is saying we need to radically remove the sin in our lives. Paul wrote in Titus 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Peter penned in 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And Paul proclaimed in Colossians 3, 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Scripture is filled from cover to cover with scriptures dealing with putting aside our sin and living holy lives. You know, Jesus, he mentions hand, foot, and eye in reference to the battle against sin as encompassing all aspects of our lives. What we do, where we go, and what we see. We are to radically, emphatically cut off sin in our lives and pursue holy living. You see, people who are habitually characterized by sin, who die in their unrepentant sin, will indeed be cast into hell and get their judgment. As verse 48 states, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus hates sin and his children. As his children, we too must hate sin. Paul penned in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Contemplate in your own heart right now. Are you hanging on to some sin in your life that you know you need to repent of and get rid of and get right with God? If it is, you can do it right now. Confess your sin to the Lord. Radically remove it no matter what it is. Remove that sin and pursue holiness. Lastly, in verses 49 and 50, Jesus rounds off his teaching on discipleship with discussing purification. Verse 49 says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Mark Strauss claims, This saying is linked to the previous ones with the catchword fire and then connects to the following two sayings with the common theme of salt. These verses, it's kind of difficult. And the best translation, the best interpretation seems to be that, it, that it's alluding to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, where salt appears as a purifying agent in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So therefore, salt and fire could be dealing with trials and persecution that believers face. And we know from Romans 12, 1, in the New Testament, that, that we as believers are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And fire, it, it can symbolize both persecution and purification. And this would connect well with the underlying theme of self 
sacrificial discipleship throughout this section. And then lastly in verse 50, Jesus talks about salt in relationship to discipleship. You know, in, in first century, there, there wasn't refrigeration. So the use of salt, one of them was as a preservative for food. And sodium chloride, you might think, well, how does salt lose its saltiness? Well, sodium chloride does not lose its saltiness, but there is a type of salt found by the Dead Sea that has different compounds in it. So when water evaporates, the sodium chloride crystallizes first and can be removed, leaving gypsum and other impurities, which therefore would leave you with salt that has lost its saltiness. So Jesus, what he's doing here, he's, he's teaching his disciples that they are to have salt in themselves, which would be just another way of saying that they are to have the characteristics of a holy life that is preserved by righteousness. I mean, the, the disciples had been arguing who was the greatest among them, and they tried to hinder this man from casting out a demon in Jesus' name. So with the salt of holiness and righteousness, the disciples could be at peace with all believers and with themselves. They could quit fighting amongst themselves who is best and instead can realize that they can be at peace with all believers. And just like the disciples, we too as believers need to realize that prayer is the, is the highway that faith takes into the power of God that to be great in the kingdom of God, we need to be last and servant of all. And that we must radically cut sin out of our lives as we pursue a life of holiness to the praise and glory of God the Father. God, we thank you this morning for your word, for what it teaches us about faith and humility and discipleship. Lord, may we check our hearts this morning and wherever we need to, to change, where we need to, to increase our faith in you, where, where we need to be humble, where we need to radically get rid of sin in our lives. May that take place. Even today, Lord, may we live a life that truly does bring glory and honor to you. And I pray if there's one person in this room today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, prick their heart, Lord. Allow them to realize that the weight of your wrath abides upon them and that they need to repent, turn away from their sin by your grace and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, which only you can do and bring them salvation. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.